you have your Bibles, please open them to Philippians chapter 1 this morning. It is our joy to continue our study of this great epistle. It is the epistle of joy. It is an epistle that encourages us as believers to rejoice in Christ and all that he has done for us. And it is a joy that teaches us that the world cannot shake our joy, that there is nothing in this world that can come into our lives. Even death itself is victory for the Christian because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We're reading from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30 this morning, and we'll entitle this passage, A Call to Unity. A Call to Unity. Paul writes this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, as we come to chapter 1, verse 27, we reach what is a transition moment in the book of Philippians. Up to this point, if you've been with us, you've seen that Paul has been expressing his joy in his present circumstances. Paul is in prison. He is in Rome. He is awaiting trial, final sentencing, and possible execution. And yet he writes in chapter 1, verse 18, I rejoice, yes, and I will Rejoice. He's been expressing his joy throughout this entire chapter. Verses 3 to 11, his joy in the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. Verses 12 to 18, his joy in his present imprisonment. Verses 19 to 26, his joy in possible death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Therefore I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. And so this entire chapter has been about Paul's joy, his perspective in his present circumstances. He wants to write to the Philippian church and let them know that these circumstances don't have him down. These circumstances don't have him discouraged. He is rejoicing, and he wants them to rejoice with him, even though he's facing possible death. And that focus has brought us all the way from the beginning of the epistle to chapter 1, verse 26, where Paul concludes this line of thinking with a statement of optimism, where he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul thinks and reasons along this line and says, my ministry to the Philippian church is not completed, and so he has confidence that he believes that God will allow him to live so that he can complete his ministry to the Philippian church. Now, all of that brings us to a transition moment in verse 27. And we enter into a new line of thinking, a new section in the book of Philippians. Paul transitions in this section from his perspective in trials to pastoral exhortations to the Philippian church. This new section begins in chapter 1, verse 27, and extends all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. And in this section, Paul is exhorting the church. He's encouraging the church. 
he's, he's expressing his pastoral heart for the church. He's saying, I love you and I long for you, but while I am absent from you, I want you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And in this section, we have two specific exhortations Paul gives to the church. The first exhortation is this, is an exhortation to unity. An exhortation to unity found in chapter 1, verse 27 to chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says, I want to hear that you're unified as a church. I want to hear that there's no divisions, no factions in the church. I want to hear that you have one mind, one spirit. And he repeats this exhortation in chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So the first concern Paul has on his heart for the church is he wants them to be unified. He wants them to share the same heart, the same soul, the same purpose, the same outlook of mind. And he wants them to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. The second exhortation we find in this broader section is an exhortation to sanctification. An exhortation to sanctification found in chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What Paul is doing in this section, he's calling the Philippians to an active involvement and participation in pursuing holiness, in pursuing godly living. And he's very specific on how, what this means. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. He says, Philippians, I want you to walk in a worthy walk. I want you to be blameless. I want you to have a, a blameless reputation with the outside world. And therefore, I, I want you to do all things without complaining or grumbling. And I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I want you to be actively engaged in the sanctification process. Why? Chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you. And so these two exhortations, first of all, an exhortation to unity, and secondly, an exhortation to sanctification, form the basis of this entire section. These are two focal points that Paul has where he wants to exhort the church. He wants to encourage them. Now, brothers and sisters, let me just remind you that Paul loves this church. I mean, he... He says, this church just fills him with joy. He says, every time I think of you, I thank God for you. He says, I can't wait till I see you again. You're the reason I live and stay in this world. I mean, he loves these church. These exhortations that he's giving them aren't meant to burden them. He doesn't want to beat them down. He wants to lift them up. And they're coming out of this heart of tenderness and pastoral concern where he just wants to express his love for them. And he does so by exhorting them to godliness. And I would just remind us that that is the tone and the tenor of this section of Scripture. And I would remind us that that is the tone and the tenor of the New Testament exhortations to us from God. When God exhorts us through his word, it comes out of 
his loving heart, his heart of concern for us. 1 John 5, 3 says, This is the love of God, that we keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. His commands are not meant to weigh us down. They are meant to free us up and to cause us to walk in the blameless way. And so let us receive the exhortations in Scripture with this understanding that this is the expression of God's love and grace toward us. That God not only means to show us his grace in our justification, our positional righteousness, but also in our sanctification, in our practical righteousness. He means to express his unmerited favor to us through the cross of his Son in causing us to walk in godliness and in holiness. That is the concern of this text. Now, I gave you two specific exhortations found in this broader section, the exhortation to unity and the exhortation to sanctification. But I want you to know that those two specific ideas are really encompassed and summarized with one bigger heading, and that's found in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says this, Only, that is, only this, this is the one thing I'm going to say. This is the main idea, the main thesis, the summary statement. Everything else falls under what I'm about to say. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that's the main idea. We could entitle this section, The Worthy Walk, or conduct that is worthy of the gospel. Paul looks at the Philippian church. He loves this church. He wants them to grow in their faith. He's already said in chapter 1, verse 9, that he's praying for them, that their love would abound still more and more, that they would be filled with knowledge and discernment and be pure and blameless. He's praying that they would grow spiritually. This is the heart of every pastor, every shepherd, to have the church grow spiritually. And as he prays for the church to grow spiritually, he now exhorts the church to grow spiritually. And he says, I have only one thing I want to say to you. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's going to apply that, as I said, in two different ways. He's going to apply that to unity, and then he's going to apply that to a blameless walk, a pursuit of sanctification. But the main idea is a worthy walk, a conduct that is worthy of the gospel. Now, this is a concern found throughout the New Testament and throughout the writings of the Apostle Paul. He wants the church to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Ephesians 4, verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Colossians 1, verse 10, Paul's praying that the church walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, he says, We exhorted you and we encouraged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul's concern to all the churches was that they, their conduct, their lives, their lifestyles 
the way that they conduct themselves in this world would reflect well on the gospel of Christ. Although we are saved apart from our works, we are saved unto good works. Although we are justified by faith alone, the faith that justifies is never alone. Good works are not the root of our salvation, and yet at the same time, they are the fruit of our salvation. Paul is saying to the church, yes, the gospel is you are saved apart from anything that you do. Not a single work adds to anything that Christ has already accomplished for you. It is grace and grace alone. You do not merit your salvation in any way. And yet at the same time, the fruit of that salvation and the fruit of that faith will be a pursuit of sober and godly living in the church. I want you to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I'll just point out to you that this is the fifth time that Paul uses the word gospel in chapter 1. In verse 5, he talked about the partnership in the gospel. In verse 7, he talks about the confirmation of the gospel. In verse 12, he talks about the progress of the gospel. In verse 16, it's the defense of the gospel. We could say that this book is a gospel-centered book. Paul is all about the gospel, the news of Christ, the news of Christ crucified, risen, triumphantly from the grave. It is all about the gospel. And yet he says, I'm explaining the gospel and teaching the gospel and confirming the gospel and I'm living for the progress of the gospel. And now he says, brothers and sisters, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. I want your lives to reflect well on the gospel. If I could summarize the main concern in this text, it would be in two simple words. Conduct matters. Conduct matters, brothers and sisters. Yes, we are saved apart from anything that we do. And yet, at the same time, Paul would urge us in this text, don't go to the other extreme and think because you're saved apart from anything that you do, that it doesn't matter what you do. It does matter what you do. The fruit of your faith in Jesus Christ will be an active obedience to the word of God and you will seek to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Conduct matters. In Titus chapter 2, Paul spent an entire chapter explaining this theme of the conduct of the church. He said to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he went on to talk about conduct how Christians are to live in light of the gospel. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith. Older women are to be reverent, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. Younger men are to be self-controlled. Paul urges Titus himself to be a model of good works. In your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. 
And he says to slaves that slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. This can be implied to the employee-employer context. Submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Brothers and sisters, these are all specific instructions that regard conduct. They, They all relate to how we live our lives in this world and in the church. And why is the church supposed to conduct their lives in this way? Paul says in verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, through the godly conduct of the church, the church will make the gospel presentation beautiful to the world. That's the issue, isn't it? Is we love the gospel. We've received the gospel. We live for the progress of the gospel. We want to defend the gospel and explain the gospel. And we want the gospel to go forward. And Paul says, if that is your aim and your passion, then conduct matters. I'm calling you to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And let me just clarify something briefly. Okay, the gospel doesn't need our help in making the message itself more beautiful. Okay, you know, the gospel message itself is beautiful. You can't make the gospel message itself more beautiful. It is beautiful. The message of Christ, the message of Christ's death, the message of Christ's love, his his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, the perfect atonement that was made as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, his triumphant resurrection from the grave, declaring victory over sin and over death and over hell, the the news that guilty sinners can be absolutely forgiven of all their sins by simple faith in Christ. You can't make that message more beautiful. It is beautiful. Only a blind person could look at that message and not just be ravished by the beauty that is in the gospel. Paul is not calling us to somehow add to the gospel message or to, to in our efforts, somehow make the message itself more beautiful. His concern is that practically speaking, brothers and sisters, we are the packaging. We are the containers who carry this gospel message to an unbelieving world. Does that make sense? We're not the gospel, and yet the gospel goes to people through people. It goes to the world through the church. We are the containers which carry the message. We're not the message, but we're the messengers. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are jars of clay. And as jars of clay, we carry this surpassing treasure, which is the gospel. We're the the packaging. And what Paul is saying when, when he says to Titus, 
I want you to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He's not saying add to the gospel or supplement the gospel. He's saying recognize this, that you are the jar which carries the surpassing treasure. But if the jar is dirty, or if the jar is cracked, or if the jar is soiled, or it hasn't been washed, then that's going to distract from the gospel message. You know, it's like if you go to an expensive restaurant, and they bring you a big piece of nice, juicy steak, and the steak itself is so beautiful, but you look at the plate, and the plate has some, some old food on it, or some rotten leftovers from yesterday that haven't been washed. And you look at that, and you can't help but be distracted from the steak. Nothing wrong with a steak. But because of the presentation, because of the packaging, you can lose your appetite for what's in the container. In a similar way, we as jars of clay desire to cleanse ourselves, to be presentable, so as not to be a distraction to the message that we carry 2 Timothy 2.21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be, the same idea, a vessel, uh, a dish, a utensil for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful for the master of the house. So that is Paul's concern. He's saying, brothers, you have received the gospel. That's why you're saved. That's why you're a Christian. And because you've received the gospel, you long to advance the gospel. And if you want to advance the gospel, you need to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Conduct matters. And you say, Dan, how do I live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, Paul's going to explain that to us as we move through this section. He says the first thing that I want you to consider is that you need to pursue unity as a church. In other words, making an impact on this world begins with relating one to one another here in the church. And then he's going to say, if you want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, you need to actively pursue sanctification. You need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, doing nothing out of grumbling or questioning so that you would live a blameless and innocent life in an unbelieving world. And that is going to be the substance of our next two messages, is this worthy walk, this blameless pursuit of blameless living for the purpose of advancing the gospel in this world. And I'm just going to be able to get a running start this morning. This morning we're just going to introduce the subject of unity because that is Paul's concern in chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. And let me just say that I believe that this is a timely message. I believe that God intends for us to hear this message at this specific moment in our church's life. You know, the Philippians were a good church. They were a godly church. They, they, didn't, they weren't like the Corinthians. When Paul spoke to the Corinthians about unity, he had a much different tone. Corinthians were divided into factions and they had divisions and they had people here who were saying, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of Cephas. And other people say, oh, you're all wrong. I am of Jesus. And, and they're all dividing over certain celebrity pastors in the church. And Paul had to, to just sternly correct them because they were already divided. They were eating the Lord's table with divisions among them. 
And he has to almost shame them into recognizing what they're doing. That's not the tone here in the book of Philippians. This is more preventative rather than corrective. Paul is saying, complete my joy. He's saying, fill it to the rim. Just cause my cup to be overflowing. I'm already rejoicing in you. But the way you can cause me to rejoice even more is by pursuing unity. So as we introduce this subject of unity, let me lay two simple points before you in our text. First, there is the call to unity. And then secondly, I want us to see the conflict of the church. First, the call. And then second, the conflict. The call is found in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Paul doesn't know when he's going to see the Philippians again. He thinks he's going to live. He thinks he'll be allowed to rejoin them. In chapter 2, verse 23, he says, I hope to send Timothy to you just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust that in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. He hopes to see them again, but he doesn't know if he'll be diverted. So he says, you know what? I don't know when I'll be able to see you again, but I want to hear that whether I'm with you or whether I am absent from you, that you are pursuing unity as a church. I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind. Now that's a beautiful word there, standing firm. Steko in the Greek. It means to stand or to stay at one's post. The word was used of a soldier who would stand his ground amidst much hostility, even to the point of his own life. It's a word of strength. It's a word of commitment. It's a word of describing a sort of steely determination. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. In other words, the type of unity that Paul is describing in this text is not a syrupy or sentimental type of concept. It's not the type of thing you write on a Hallmark card. You just say, dear friend, you just warm my heart with, you know, I think of bunnies when I think of you. I mean, it's not that kind of idea. It's not even the kind of romantic idea that might be between two sweethearts or a girlfriend or a boyfriend. That whenever I think of you, there are birds in the air. That's not what he's saying here. He's talking here about a strong determination to stand firm in unity, a steely resolve to pursue unity at all costs. It's not about sentimental feelings. It's about sticking at your post no matter what comes. You know, those of you who are married, you know this. You know, on the wedding day, it's all romance and roses. It's all nice feelings and nice music. And then you get into the thick of married life and you realize this is a commitment. Married life is a covenant first. It is feeling second. 
And there has to be at the heart of every marital union this steely determination that we will, by the grace of God and by the grace that God gives to us, we will stand together. There's been times in my own marriage Mina and I, we will have an argument or we will have a hard talk. We'll have a hard time disagreeing. We'll talk things out for hours. And at the end of the night, we will say to each other with gritted teeth, I love you. I am committed to you. Till death do we part. That's how we'll end the night. It's very little romance in those moments. But there is this determination. We have made a covenant. We will walk through this. We have made a promise. And we are going to stand no matter what it takes. We will work through this. And that's the type of idea that Paul's calling the church to. I want you to stand in unity. In one spirit, one pneuma, one attitude or outlook in life. I want you to have one mind, literally suke in the Greek, one soul. Unity is not just external, it's internal. It's about having the same affections, the same purpose, the same mind. It is the unity that is forged in the Christian's heart because of our common love for Christ. We don't pursue this kind of internal unity by looking at each other. We're all different. We, we can't pursue unity on that basis. We pursue this unity by looking to Christ. And because we love Christ and our hearts are bound together in faith in him, our hearts are knit together in one mind and one soul. And he says, I want you to be standing firm in this. The New Testament piece is called, in so many places, Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. Ephesians 4.3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 1 Peter 3.8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Paul wants the church, he's saying, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the way you do that is by standing firm in unity. And then he adds in verse 27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, the brothers, you're going to like this because this is an athletic word. This is a word from the world of sports. Soon athleo. From athleo, which means to contend in in an athletic contest. And soon, meaning with or alongside of. The idea Paul is saying is that Christianity is a team sport. Christianity is football, it's not golf. It's basketball, it's not bowling. It's synchronized swimming, it's not individual swimming. It is a team concept. The issue is not how you are doing individually. The issue is how well we are playing together as a team. Are we striving side by side for the faith of the gospel? One commentator says Paul envisions the Christian as a gladiator in the arena of faith, contending with other gladiators for the progress of the gospel. It was a game we played at the retreat, men's retreat last time, that I absolutely hated. I absolutely despise. I mean, I could take the durian. Durian was actually okay. The, the other games were, were fun, but 
this game was horrendous. It was the three-legged race. And I enjoyed watching other men play this game. I really did not enjoy playing it myself. Because they strap your leg to another brother in Christ. And if I remember, the brother that I was strapped to was much bigger than me. And they tell you to run to the other side as fast as you can, but you can't run to the other side in your own strength. You have to synchronize your efforts with this other brother. You have to be considerate. You have to listen. You have to strategize. You have to defer and know where he's at and what his gait is like. And if you don't do all of those things, then you will end up falling down in the mud. I'd much rather run my race in my own time, and in my own speed. And what Paul is saying here is that the Christian life is not just striving and running, it is striving side by side. It is running side by side. It is team running. We are to strive side by side with other believers. And then Paul says, this is for the faith of the gospel. The second time Paul uses the word gospel in this one verse. The faith of the gospel, which is the objective content of the gospel. The doctrine, the teaching of the gospel. The doctrine of God's holiness. The doctrine of man's sin. The doctrine of who Jesus is. The doctrine of his humanity. The doctrine of his deity. The doctrine of his impeccability. The doctrine of the atonement the doctrine of the literal bodily resurrection from the grave, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the doctrine of conversion, the doctrine of faith, repentance, all of these doctrines make up the content, the teaching of the gospel. And Paul is saying, I want you as a church to strive side by side to see this doctrine, this teaching, this content move forward in this world. That's the call. Unity is not just we get together and we have nice feelings about each other. Unity is that we are focused on this one goal of advancing the gospel in this world. Now, if that's the call to unity, let's move very quickly to the conflict of the church. What's the conflict of the church? Verse 28, Paul says, And not frightened in anything, by your opponents. It was a frightening time to live as a Christian. Paul was beaten, he was jailed, he's in prison, he's facing execution. Here he is 12 years later, and the entire time he's gone through numerous sufferings because of his faith in Christ. And he doesn't want the church to be timid. And so he says, I don't want you to be frightened by your opponents. This, he says, the opposition of the world is a clear sign to them of their destruction. There are things in the Bible that just are not politically correct. I was trying to think of a way to soften this, but you really can't. What Paul is saying here is that when an unbeliever is opposed in hostility to the church, that is a sign and evidence that he is headed for eternal judgment. All sinners who die apart from the blood of Christ washing over their sins are headed for eternal hell because God's holiness cannot abide 
with sin. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Paul says that their hostility toward you is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He's saying, why is the world hostile towards Christians? It's when you are persecuted for the sake of Christ. That is a clear sign. It is an evidence that your salvation is really genuine. It's a reason to rejoice. Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Matthew 10.24, A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? In this life, they're suffering because of sin. They're suffering because of just God's sovereignty. And then there is suffering that is directly for the sake of Christ. There's suffering that is inflicted upon the believer directly because you are a faithful disciple of Christ. And when we encounter that kind of suffering, Jesus would say rejoice. And Paul would say rejoice because that is an evidence that you are truly saved. You know, some of you, brothers and sisters, you have experienced tremendous suffering because of your faith in Christ. You've lost family members. You've lost friends. You have been ostracized at work. You've lost financial opportunities. You have had people call you names. This is a clear sign, a clear evidence, Paul says, of your salvation. And it's from God. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Sometimes when a person becomes a Christian, a sword comes into the home. There's division because of hostility to Christ. And Paul is saying that when you see that sword, that is evidence that that person is really saved. And it is evidence that those who are hostile are headed for destruction. Verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you. Literally, it has been given as a grace gift. Corizo, from the word charis, meaning grace. God has been gracious to you. How? Two gifts of grace he has given to you. First, that you should believe in him. We all say, man, I love that gift. Give me more of that gift, God. That's a gracious gift. I've had my eyes open to see Christ. He says there's a second gift that God gives by his grace. Also, verse 29, to suffer for his sake. He said, can I take the first gift and not take the second? Because the first gift feels like grace and the second doesn't. But Paul says they're both God's grace. And the key is it is 
to suffer, verse 29, for his sake. It is to suffer for Christ's sake. What a privilege, Paul would say. What a privilege to suffer for him. It's for him to suffer for the one who has loved us, to suffer for the one who has suffered for us. Not in any way that our suffering adds to his suffering, but just to do anything by faith in his name and for his sake, to express our love for him. That is a gracious gift of God. And we ought to rejoice if we are given that privilege. Verse 30, he says, you are engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had. You remember 12 years ago when I came to Philippi and I was thrown in prison and beaten because of my preaching. And now here that I still have. Even now, 12 years later, I'm in Rome and I'm facing death because of my faith. And when you suffer for Christ, you are engaged in the same conflict. We're on the same team. Paul moves from the call to unity to the conflict of the church. And the way that these two harmonize together is what Paul is doing is he's shepherding our hearts. He's placing the subject of unity in perspective. He's saying to the church that the unity of the church is not for the sake of unity. It is for the sake of the gospel. The unity of the church is for the purpose of advancing the gospel in an unbelieving world. And as the gospel advances into hostile territory, it meets resistance. And the church is to stand unified, striving side by side with one mind and one spirit for the faith of the gospel. If you want to think about it this way, a football team does not gain unity by standing in a locker room and looking at each other and talking about what great guys they are. A football team gets unity when they get on the field and the coach says, your purpose is to march this ball down the field to the other side. That purpose unites their hearts together. And if you want to think about it this way, in our case, the team is the church. The ball is the gospel. The field is the unbelieving world. And as we march the ball down the field, it will meet resistance. And therefore, we are to strive side by side in one mind and one spirit for the progress of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, conduct matters. Conduct matters. And the first area of conduct that is so key to the advance of the gospel is, are we pursuing unity as a church? Are we committed? And yes, there's going to be hard times. And yes, there's going to be disagreements. And yes, in my marriage, I can think of myself and Mina. We've had so many times, so many difficult times. We had to work it through and talk it out and stay committed and keep moving forward. And many times those talks went on until 3, 4 a.m. in the morning. We just keep talking until we are unified. It's not that we're not going to face threats or hindrances to unity. It's that when we do, we are committed 
working those things out, not for our sake, but for the gospel's sake. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. The verb could be translated since. He's saying since you've been encouraged by Christ. Because you have received the comfort of his love. Because you have experienced that sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit where the Spirit has come into your heart and ministered to you and shown you the beauty of Christ because God has lavished upon you his affection, his sympathy, because we have received all of these blessings by grace in the gospel message, Paul says, complete my joy and pursue unity. You know, it's all about the gospel. He begins in verse 27 saying this is conduct worthy of the gospel. He says in verse 27 that I want you to be unified so that you can advance the faith of the gospel. And then in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, he reminds us of the specific blessings that we have received in the gospel. And in this way, Paul seeks to melt our hearts as we remember good Christ has been to us. And because we have received so much encouragement, so much comfort, so much fellowship and affection from Christ, that we would pursue unity together as a church. This is what the Lord's table is about. This is what we do as we come and we take the bread and the cup. We are remembering the specific benefits and the blessings that have come to us by grace through the gospel of Christ. We're remembering our Savior and how he has died for us and how his sacrifice on the cross has brought encouragement to our hearts when we were hopeless and saw only death and destruction because of our sins, how he brought us good news, good tidings. He comforted us us with his love. The Holy Spirit came and regenerated our hearts and we fellowship with the Holy Spirit in this way. And through the work of Christ, God showed us his compassion and his sympathy toward us. As we take of the bread and the cup, let us remember the gospel. Let us renew our hearts to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Let us renew our purpose to advance the gospel in this world. And let us also remember that this time of celebration around the Lord's table, it is not just a remembrance of Christ, but it is also a celebration of the church's unity. It is a celebration, a reminder that we are of one mind, one soul here, because we have one love and we have one faith We have one Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a communion, a koinonia in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? Do we not fellowship with one another as we take of the bread and of the cup? 
one exercise you might want to do one of these communion Sundays as I knew that many of us take the bread and the cup by closing our eyes and focusing on Christ I would encourage you one of these Sundays to focus and look out and to see one another because this is fellowship this is communion this is what binds our hearts together in the church's unity let's pray together as we come to the Lord's table Our Father, we thank you, we bless you, we praise your holy name. Thank you for instruction of your word. And Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we want to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. We want to see the gospel advance in this world. We'll see lives saved for the glory of Christ. And Lord, that is why we pray that you would unite your church. You would guard Cornerstone Bible Church from divisions, factions. And even, Lord, as we oftentimes face difficult challenges in the area of unity, that, Lord, we would not seek the answers in our own selves, but that we would remember the blessings of Christ and that the comfort the encouragement we receive from the gospel would be the motivation for us to stand firm in unity together bless this time as we come to the Lord's table as we eat as we partake may we remember not only Christ but the unity we have through faith in Christ we pray this all in Christ's name amen